The chest, uh, 463. The chestnut, I can't do it with the glasses. Chestnut bellied euphonia. Uh, the red crown ant tanager. The gira tanager. The blue dancedness. The ruby crown tanager. The black goggled tanager. A lot of tanagers here. The magpie tanager. The creamy bellied, I think I did this already. The lesser uh, Kiskadi, the Rufus Casinoris, the dull-capped Attila, the Attila. Fuscus Flycatcher, the poorly I vented Toady Tyrant, pearly vented. Poorly vented? Pearly vented. Oh, pearly vented. Pearly vented. Or some of them are probably poorly vented. The Forest Elania, the Red-Billed Scythe Bill, the Great Rufus Wood Creeper, the Band-Tailed Antbird, just see if an any, ant of you, any of these you would you would possibly be if you were a bird. What about the Matto Grosso <laughs> ant bird, the black-bellied ant wren, the Plino slaty ant shrike, the crimson-crested woodpecker, the pale-crested woodpecker, the white-wedged picolet, the American pygmy kingfisher, uh, the green and rufous kingfisher, the cinnamon-throated hermit, the russet rufous kingfisher. You would be the rufous kingfisher? No, I think. No, I think that. That question is, if you would be a tree, what would you be? But we're asked? not talking trees here. When but we do no, the tree nobody, book, you could be a tree. This is a bird book. Nobody ever asked what kind of bird you I asked. Why can't I? You can ask. You but, said, so what no, would you but, be? No, I, I... The Great Rufus Woodcreeper? No, not what I would be, but those are interesting names. Oh, okay. The Rufus Kingfisher. That's what you would be? No, but it's a funny name. He's Green and Rufus, the Kingfisher. The Cinnamon-Throated Hermit. Well... <laughs> Okay, that's 712. We got Holy s- cow. 6,000 more to do. So that'll be coming up on the so show. So that's later. what the book is filled with? Just bird names? No, he went in to find all these birds in one year. <laughs> right, but. That's what your big year means. So that. Did you ever have a big year? But that book is just a <laughs> constant list of the names and that's it? No, there's a, it's his whole story. Oh, you know, he traveled around oh, the world. Oh, there's a story and, too. All right. Oh, there's lots of stories in there. All right. You'd be surprised how many birders there are. I would. Atlas had a bad back that was wide shrug. Atlas had a bad back that was wide shrug. Now can't hoist the world. No, I never could. Say you say in goodbye for good. Hello, everybody. It's uh, the 3rd of March, 3318, as a matter of fact, and uh, not a bad day out there. Yeah, fairly decent. So it's pretty good, and uh, how do you do? I'm uh, Michael Feldman, as you may know. This man here in the little box on my shoulder, that's Lyle Anderson. Say hello, Lyle Anderson. He's got a bird on his shoulder because we're doing birds today. 
Birding Without Borders, to be exact, coming up. Lots of fun with birds. So if you uh, like birds or if you are a bird, you want to listen for this. Coming up before you know it. Waited like a house dog, but you never came. Waited like a house dog, but you never came. Neighbors hear me howl and shoot me if they could. Say you say in goodbye for good. It's goodbye for good. That's my pal Johnny Seeger there. And those are Feldman lyrics, you can tell. By the opening. Atlas had a bad back, that's why he shrugged. You know, no one writes them like that anymore, I would have to no. say. No. How are you? Well, Anderson? I'm good. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you got your grandfather clock working, so things yes. are working for you. Technological marvels. Yes. And all it was, you had to level it, right? I just had to level it up. Level it up. How long, how many years did you, did it take before you figured out you had to level it up for it actually to work? No, it wasn't years. It was just a couple of uh, minutes. Oh, that's a bad story. Then I thought it was years. He had this clock, and it wouldn't. It would stop, and then you. Oh no no no! Shimmed it up, and finally it. it uh, no, that was all in recent history. Recent. Yeah. From oh. yeah. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> Not much of a story at all in that no, case. No no no! It's a short story. All right. Uh, in all the news that isn't for March third, two thousand and eighteen. A shout out to Hope Hicks for going where an Alpha Gamma Delta girl has never gone before. Talk about putting your head in the lion's mouth. Hope said it was just time to move on, but uh, it was the continual hand buzzers from the president that really drove her out. Uh, Prosecutor Mueller has subpoenaed Hope's diary to find out what little or little white lies actually were. Probably explaining the long hours to her boyfriend, Corey Lewandowski. Long hours with the president. Nice girl, but bad judge of men. You know, Corey Lewandowski and the president, really, there's not much leeway there. Excuse me. In other news, uh, Ben Carson will return the Jefferson sideboard to Monticello, but he's keeping the 28 black and gold Windsor chairs uh, for reparations, I guess. Uh, The President uh, Trump says his missile is more invincible than Putin's, adding, but hey, Vlad's missile is impressive. Mine's just way better. L.L. Bean will raise the age for guns to 21 and for slippers to 60. Aluminum tariffs. Very much in the news. Aluminum tariffs rock TV dinner futures. You know, I wrote that and I realized that TV dinners don't come in <laughs> aluminum trays anymore, so it shows you where I'm at. Short out Otherwise, it would have been a dynamite joke about aluminum tariffs. And it's hard to do a joke it, on it, aluminum tariffs. Young. Yeah. It's not 1955 anymore. It's not? <laughs> I mean, we don't have that purple Oldsmobile? But uh, the steel tariffs, okay, there's one. There, there goes the cheap imported steel Great Wall of Trump. They can they build that wall out of cheap Chinese steel. Hmm. It would have been half price. So he's biting himself in the, his own ass, <laughs> if that's an expression. If not, it should be. In his own Trump. Uh, Trump tweets Alec Baldwin's impression of him on SNL was agony to watch, but Mr. President, the agony is watching the real thing. That's an editorial. I don't care. Uh, I'm pretty sure the tweets he makes while actually on the crapper are meant to be off the record, but I, it's hard to say with him. 
Two kinds of tweets on Crapper and off for the president. Nation of immigrants has been deleted from the mission statement of the immigration services, uh, replaced with a nation of people, places, and things. The first breakthrough in uh, Trump Jr.'s trip to India is the Trump Mahal. So that was a a conquest. Quite an acquisition for the Trump (laughs) Industries. Uh, The Indians are still hesitant about the six-foot Trump letters on the dome, but Jr. has the power to go to four to seal the deal. So that's, uh, that's a big one for him. And he needed a big one, actually. So rough go of it. Speaking of which, Jared Kushner has been downgraded to the couch in the White House map room. It's his latest downgrade. FedEx refuses to break ties with the NRA. And, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to associate FedEx with Wayne LaPierre than Tom Hanks or his cute little Wilson the volleyball. And finally, and I mean that on teachers and guns, so to be clear, you're expecting people who can't handle an overhead projector to brandish a Glock. And that's all the news that isn't. This is why we have engineers, but, you know. I'll fix this in the mix. That'll be like, ooh, wow, and I need hit that. Atlas had a bad back that was wide shrug. Atlas had a bad back that was wide that's the only time an Atlas uh, shrugging, shrugging. Uh, reference has ever been in a song, I believe, <laughs> with the great John Seeger there and uh, my pal from uh, Semi-Twang and other places as well. And we've been writing songs together for a lot of years now, and we have yet to have one hit. Uh, so There's the uh, Lesser Kiskadi, the Rufus Cassiorius, the Dull-Capped Attila. Oh, I think I did these. Yeah, you know, they, I, I a lot remember of the names th- are very similar. I guess I was Maybe up several to, of them are Attila's. Up to the gray-headed spine tail, did I say that? I think I might have. I'm skipping a few, I must admit. <laughs> Number 1,168, 6, the sulfur-throated finch. Baird, why don't you call him up? He's probably up. All right. You know. Not that this isn't riveting. Probably the riveting flycatcher, as a matter of fact. The white-edged oriole, the white-headed brush finch, the collared warbling finch, the white-tailed jay. These are all in Peru now. Peru is a very good spot, by the way. You might head for Peru first, Peru or Ecuador. The sooty crown flycatcher, Tums Tyrant. There's a big tyrant family, which I was unaware of, and I don't know why they're called that. I would like to know who names them. That's an important question. The necklaced spine tail, the streak-headed wood creeper, the elegant cress, crescent chest, the elegant crescent. Hello, chest. Noah. This is Lyle with uh, the red masked parakeet, the scrub nightjar, yeah. the Peruvian screech owl. Oh, is he on? He's on. Oh, well, that's what's wonderful. Okay, thank you. I'm glad to hear it because then I can actually stop reading all the. Hi, Noah. How are you? Hey, doing good. I'm going through the list. I'm not getting very far. <laughs> yeah. I'm up to I'm up to the uh, rusty tinged ant pitta. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> what What did you like most about the rusty tinged ant pitta? <laughs> uh, ant pittas in general, they're like these little egg-shaped birds that run around in the undergrowth in South America. Yeah. Exclusively in South America? South and Central America, but yeah. 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 The ant pitta family, is it a large family? There's about 50 species of ant pittas. There's yeah. a guy in Ecuador who feeds them, which is quite entertaining. Yeah, that's right. There's a guy who throws them worms or something. He's the only, like the only trained ant pitta in the world. Is that true? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, that's pretty interesting. Okay, I, I won't read any more of these because I guess you know them. 
<laughs> and so that was like, what, you, you found 6,042 species? That's right, yep. Yeah, in one year. And then uh, the next year, another guy did more. That's kind of disappointing. I, he went right out and broke my record. Just the <laughs> instant I finished, he <laughs> set out on his own round-the-world bird-watching trip. Yeah. Was it influenced by yours? Did he copy some of your sequences and places to go and method- methodology? Yeah, so this young birder named Ariane in the Netherlands kind of had been watching my efforts in 2015 and um, based his trip kind of as a blueprint on the places I visited and then tweaked it a little bit here and there so that he could squeeze out a few more birds based on my mistakes. Yeah. Is there a birding board that judges on these things? Wouldn't that be sort of an illegal thing to do, to, to, to steal your, uh, your whole methodology? Uh, no, I mean, if you're going to break a record, yeah. the best thing you can do is to learn from those who have gone before you. Yeah. It was just kind of surprising because before me, nobody had really done this at all, yeah. at least to quite such an ambitious extent. And then I thought, well, maybe my record will sit for a few years before somebody <laughs> takes it on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's let's talk about the concept. There's birding, and there's lots of birders around. We see them all over. But the big year concept that when that come about in the in the seventies or something, or the eighties. Well, I think you can trace a big year in birding all the way back to Roger Tory Peterson in the nineteen fifties. Really? Peterson is like the father of modern bird watching and yeah. wrote one of the first field guides. And he did a big trip across the U.S. with a British friend of his, James Fisher, where they drove all the way across North America from one end to the other, and then he ended up writing a book about that called Wild America, and it was yeah. in that book that he said, I've, in 1953, I saw 573 birds, and then the, the game was on after that. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was sort of the, that, that book is very well uh, respected. Wild America was sort of the, the tipping point for bird interest, I guess. Or for oh, birds. yeah. If yeah. you haven't read Wild America, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to go on a road trip with Roger Tory Peterson? Yeah. It depends on the car. What was he driving? <laughs> <laughs> There's various beat-up models. <laughs> yeah. Well, you had quite a few experiences with, with uh, cars in strange places, I know. Broken-down cars in, uh, in the Andes and so forth. I think the worst was Peru. At one point in Peru, I found myself on a remote mountaintop stuck in the mud with two <laughs> flat tires and a dead battery simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. But you, you, were de- you were dependent on the kindness of strangers throughout your trip. Right? I mean, that, that's the most remarkable thing about it, I think. is, is Well, the birds are remarkable, obviously, but you, you hooked up with people in all these areas somehow who showed you what there was to see where they lived, in the Andes or in wherever, in the Falkland Islands. Well, that was the whole idea of this trip. It was kind of like the couch surfing of birding trips. And I had a rule, actually. I said I had to see every bird with at least one other person, which incidentally would give me witnesses for all these sightings. And it was cool because I got to call up birders halfway around the world and say, hey, I'm doing a big year. Can I come sleep on your couch for a few days? And do you want to go hit your local hotspots? And so by the end, I ended up meeting hundreds of different people from all around the world. And, you know, birders come from all different walks of life. And so it was was pretty cool to have this one shared interest with all these different people from around the world. Yeah. How is that possible to to do that? How, How do you call these people up? Well, this trip wouldn't have even been possible and remotely the same way even a few years ago, but it's amazing how the internet has brought together birders like never before, and I think it's kind of ironic because bird watching is this totally analog activity, and yet 
digitally, birders are well connected now. And so there's all kinds of websites like eBird and birdingpal.com where <laughs> you can find other people in different places. And birding is this kind of small network where you can literally call someone up and say, hey, I'm a birder and I'm coming to your area. And and like as not, they'll say, yeah, cool, let's do some bird watching, even if they have no idea who you are, because it's it's almost as fun to show somebody a new bird as it is to see one yourself. Yeah. So these guys must be doing a lot of business now since your book, right? I mean, now everyone probably is, is wanting to try this and bust the new didn't they Didn't they raise a number of species? So it's, it's even harder now to do. Yeah, every year scientists keep making new bird species. <laughs> yeah. So the the record is no longer even 6,000 however many species. It keeps going up because of uh, new research coming out, which yeah. is also interesting. So it's a receding goalpost, but um, <laughs> yeah, the point was for the adventure, of course, and seeing yeah. 60% of the birds in the world in one year was a pretty awesome way to spend a year. Yeah. Is, is it the quest or is it the love of birds? <laughs> I think birding is more a lifestyle than a job or a hobby or anything else. Um, I've studied birds pretty much all my life, and and yet when I go home, I still go bird watching in my free time. And so, <laughs> it's a it's an obsession let loose. It's an addiction. It's all of the above. Uh-huh. It's it's not like an extreme sport or something, but it's it's something more than that. It's also it, there must be a passion about about bird species and in there who would, who would do it otherwise it's cool because there's birds everywhere in the world and yet everywhere you go there's different birds that you don't see in other places and so it goes very well with traveling birds are conspicuous they're colorful they have loud songs they're easier to see than like mammals or snakes or something where you have to go out after night with a spotlight to even have a chance and so they're accessible and i think in that way birds are this gateway to people getting outside and caring about nature, which I think mm. is awesome. So there aren't, like, mammal birders going out there? Not what, what so much. Not in the same way that there's bird watchers. Because yeah. <laughs> you've seen one mammal, you've seen pretty much all of them. It's pretty much the, <laughs> I mean, you, you go to Africa, the, big that, ones. the yeah. mammals are pretty cool, but yeah. most places, mammals are pretty hard to see. You started in Antarctica. Is that an odd place to start? Because there, there can't be that many species. It was an unusual place to start a bird-watching year because there's not that many species of birds in Antarctica. There's a few penguins, there's a couple seabirds, and that's about it. But for me, I really wanted to embrace the adventure aspect of this year as well. It wasn't just just listing species. It was getting to these cool places and seeing some amazing landscapes and all the rest. And personally, I had been to Antarctica almost 20 times before as a guide on various trips and expeditions and so i really wanted to kick things off there yeah so there are birds there who were happy to see you yeah right i got to see all these penguins and uh the albatross and the drake passage are magnificent Mm -hmm. did you did you find a bird or two that you hadn't seen before during the year yeah in antarctica uh, in antarctica no i don't think so i it would take a pretty rare bird for me to find a new one in antarctica these days yeah but so, elsewhere, I mean, I'd never been to Africa at all before in my life, before I hit that continent during this big year. So everything I, I saw there was new. Everything was new. But uh, really, so, but the trip itself sort of hit its heyday, or, or it started to gain traction when you did uh, uh, 
Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, right? South America has more bird species than any other continent, and especially that northwestern corner, uh, Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia, and northwestern Brazil, has the highest biodiversity of any place in the world. Oh. So you can see a thousand species in a month. I think I saw 625 species in Ecuador in 11 days, and you could just keep going. It's pretty radical. Yeah. How, how do you know when you have a, a species? I mean, identification-wise. Well, I try to study field guides ahead of time and do my homework so I know what to expect. I've also been looking at eBird a lot, which is this uh, database that I mentioned earlier. Birders are putting in their sightings, and you can see what people have seen before you in certain places, and that was extremely useful. And I was with all these local birders in different places, and so if I had no idea what I was looking at, they could say, well, that's a, that's a you know, rusty-tinged ant pitta, and I could then look it up and say, oh, yeah, you're right, that's awesome. And um, so hooking up with locals was the key part of the strategy, not just for company in the field, but for really being successful in finding the things that I needed to see. Yeah. And Ecuador is special, right, because they have, they're committed to biodiversity and, and, and to nature, and nature is part of their constitution. Yeah, Ecuador, especially Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Um, some of these countries around the world have better conservation programs than others, <laughs> and, and those are the places that are really productive to go to for birds now because Certain other places have not had such a good conservation ethic, and they've cut down their forest, and they've lost not just their birds, but many other things as well. Yeah. And Brazil, I guess that, that's true, because of the rainforest deforestation. Yeah, it was amazing the droughts they were having in Sao Paulo when I was there, and um, just uh, they're talking about ecological collapse in certain parts of Brazil where they've lost so much forest that it's affecting the weather patterns and desertifying things, and there's no going back at that point. And it's kind of it was depressing to see the sheer scale of habitat loss in a lot of places, and there was no getting around it mm-hmm. and how things are changing. But it was also kind of inspiring to see how even in all these far-flung countries, there's a lot of people that really care about birds and, mm-hmm. and the environment. And so I came away with a somewhat optimistic sense from this whole trip. Yeah. In, in this leg of the trip, the South America, Central America, what was the most astounding bird that you ran? The one that you probably didn't think you'd ever see that, that you did see. Well, the number one bird I was hoping to find was the harpy eagle. And right. I got a chance to see it in Brazil. It's a three-foot-tall eagle that eats monkeys and sloths as its main <laughs> diet. It builds a nest the size of a Volkswagen bus, and I stake this thing out near the Pantanal for an entire morning for almost five straight hours before finally, thankfully, the male eagle flew in, clutching a half of a coati, this kind of raccoon-like animal, in its talons. And that had to be one of the best birding moments I've ever had. Yeah. But did you see the female? I did not see the female. I still have no idea if she was in the forest nearby or the male seemed to be looking for her, too. (laughs) (laughs) There lies a story. That's another book, I guess. But the, cause the the female is like twice as big as the male. Is that correct? The, the they harpy? are, yeah. yeah. In general, female raptors are bigger than the males. Yeah. Uh, so maybe she was out hunting or something. He just got some whatever hors d'oeuvres or something compared to what she could come home with. <laughs> That's right. She was yeah. out taking down the biggest monkey in the forest, probably. Yeah. That was the harpy. 
uh, of the uh, of the lesser birds in that in this area, you know, in this leg of the trip, um, what what uh, surprised you the most, or you're, you're happiest to see? I'm wondering. The harpy obviously is a big; you can't miss it. But there are probably some lesser ones that. Well, th- sure. There's yeah. there's lots of endemic birds yeah. that I had to be really focused on because yeah. you can't see them except in one little area. So you know you got to go to all these islands and isolated mountain ranges where little brown songbirds have evolved into new species, and so. I got to see a lot of hummingbirds in South America. There's almost 350 species of hummingbirds in the world. I saw one called the Marvelous Satchel Tail, which has these ridiculous tail streamers that are longer than its own body that curl around behind it and end in a little blob that looks like a pair of flies following the bird around. Very strange. What was evolution thinking there, I wonder? Who knows? This yeah. this spatula tail has evolved in one valley in northern Peru, and mm-hmm. it's like nothing else in the world. Wow, that's amazing! All right, so then from you, then you came back to the states. You came, well, you came up through Mexico, and you went. Through, you, you're in the states for a while. Were you up in Oregon, or where you where you're from? Or? I did come through the states for about a week and a half. I didn't spend much time here because there's not that many birds in the U.S. compared to other parts of the world. But I spent two days in South Texas, a day and a half in Southeast Arizona, a day out of Los Angeles, a few days in Oregon because I wanted to see my home birds and sleep in my own bed for a couple of nights. And then (laughs) I spent a couple days around Ithaca in New York with some friends from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and continued on my way to the Eastern Hemisphere from there. Yeah. And you mentioned the Cornell Lab. That, that's the place to go for any information on any of this or research on these species, right, Cornell? Cornell's got an amazing program with all kinds of ornithology studies going on, and, and that's been true for many decades now. So it is kind of a mecca for birders in the U.S. Yeah. And then on to Africa. And as you say, you've never been there before, and, and were you able to make local connections there with people? I was, yeah. Even in Cameroon, which was probably just about the roughest place I went during the year, during the height of the wet season, no less, I found a guy who was willing to drive me around. Um, He borrowed a car from some friend that didn't really work, and we got stuck in the mud repeatedly and uh, everything else. But we saw the birds I needed to see there. So it's amazing how Anywhere in the world, there is somebody who pays attention to birds. Yeah. What did you find in Cameroon that you liked? I got to see a bird called the uh, Picathardes, which some people call a rock fowl. It's this strange bird endemic to West Africa that nests in the interior of caves in Mm. the rainforest, and you see it by staking out this entrance to the cave at dusk, and watch for this rock fowl, which looks weird. It's got like a bare head with color on it, red and yellow, and um, pretty big. It's like the size of a football, and it comes in right at dusk and very tentatively hops up to this nest, which is a mud thing that's plastered onto the wall of this rock cave. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was probably the best bird I saw in Cameroon. That's pretty cool. And in Ghana, I know you had some activities in there, and and some were kind of... Uh, dicey <laughs> contacts. Yeah, yeah. I, I dropped into Ghana for a little more than a week and uh, actually met this awesome local birder there who took me around to some amazing places. Ghana is kind of this, uh, it's a 
birding hotspot in West Africa because mm-hmm. it's got all the different habitats. It's got everything from the wet tropical forest on the coast, and then as you go to the interior, you get to this dry savanna, almost like African safari-type stuff with elephants and all the rest. And so doing a transect across Ghana, you get to see a whole lot of different habitats. There's a national park in the, in the rainforest that has the best canopy walkway system mm-hmm. I've ever seen. It's almost a quarter mile of hanging bridges through treetops 150 feet above the ground, and you can just hang out up in the canopy for an entire day if you want to and get a bird's-eye view up there. So you can walk the forest on, in, from the tops of the trees. Yeah, kind of an unusual experience. Yeah. Are you okay with heights? I loved it. I, there were some other people there who didn't love it quite so much because these walkways are swaying all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool. How hard is it to identify a species when you're up there in the treetops? That's got to be tough. Actually, it's much easier because you're there eye level with them. Oh. You can see the birds right next to you, whereas on the ground you're craning your neck and getting a crick in your neck just trying to see the undertail coverts of a bird that's 200 feet up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And then so, and then uh, other African countries as well, in Madagascar, uh, and then uh, the UAE, uh, that's unexpected. The United Arab Emirates is this little yeah, strange country in the Middle East that I had to fly through anyway because uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi have connections just about everywhere. Right. And so I decided to build in an extra day layover and see if I could see some birds around the country while I was there. I got in touch with a guy who was a airline pilot, actually, who had some other connections with birders around Dubai. And so he set me up with a couple of friends. And so I spent one day driving all around the UAE with these guys looking for birds in the sand dunes. It was like 110 degrees that day. And um, we birded a sod farm, which is the only green place around looking for shorebirds and migrants. And we ended up seeing 118 different species of birds that day in the desert. Yeah. What, what impressed you in the UAE? It's a, you know, the, the city and the culture is one thing, Mm -hmm. but then you get out of the city and right away you're just out in basically the middle of nowhere and the landscape was actually really cool it's this middle eastern desert and the birds are amazing there's sand grouse and all kinds of stuff yeah interesting and that was sort of the gateway to india and and india is it's got to be a paradise for for birders india is its own continent i mean it's a subcontinent technically but there's 1,200 plus species of birds just in India. You could spend a lifetime there and not see all the birds. And again, the diversity in India is incredible. You've got everything from the deserts in central India on the plains to the tea plantations in the western Ghats in the south. And then I took a sleeper train from Delhi north up into the uh, foothills of the Himalaya where it was freezing cold and saw some pretty cool birds up there. And uh, Culturally, too, India is quite different than anywhere else I had been. It was the only place I got sick to my stomach on food, but it was well worth it because the food there was so tasty. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true of me, too, with Indian food. You love it, but good luck. You know. That's right. Yeah. I, I think you adjust to it after a while. What, what are some of the species that come to mind from, uh, from India? 
I got to see a great hornbill in South India, which is actually not endemic. They're all over Southeast Asia, but it was the first one I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And the great hornbill is huge. It's almost a meter long. It's got a beak that is practically as long as your arm. And the colors are spectacular. They're loud. They've, uh, they're they not a subtle bird. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. And it's called a hornbill because on the top of its beak, which is like a toucan kind of beak, mm-hmm. it has an extra structure that looks like an extra echoing chamber or something up there. I'm not sure anyone quite realizes why it has this mm-hmm. thing on top of its beak, but it's quite an impressive bird. Yeah. Do they have birds of paradise in India as well? Not in India. Birds of Paradise are almost restricted to New Guinea. So I got to see some when I got down there in Papua New Guinea. Uh, There's 41 species of Birds of Paradise, and they're all ridiculous. They have these amazing courtship displays where they transform themselves into different shapes and shimmering colors, and they fluff up their feathers. One of them looks like a feather duster or something more than a bird it like deconstructs itself basically in the canopy and and shows off its colors and makes weird noises and uh, birds of paradise are something else they got pretty famous when david attenborough did a series called attenborough in paradise and so every ever since then for birders anyway new guinea has pretty much been synonymous with birds of paradise and david attenborough right (laughs) And, and it's the males, right? I mean, let's face it. It's the males and most of these species that are the showy ones. It is the males. People are often like, uh, why are female birds in general so boring and brown-colored? It's not fair. The males get to be the showy ones. And it is true. Um, in general, in birds, the more dimorphic they are, the more the males are different than the females. It's because the females do all the work of raising the mm. eggs and the chicks, and they have to be camouflaged to sit on the nest, yeah. which, again, doesn't seem fair. But it is true also that it's because of selection over the years. The females have been the ones that have picked the most flashy-colored males because those go. are the ones they're attracted to. And wow. so over time, that's how these crazy plumages evolved that yeah. are really good for nothing except showing off yeah. and showing off how, you know, your vitality and health, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and it's the same in fish and other species as well. It's, it's, it's really you're trying to win the heart of the female. And That's so right. You'll go to any extreme. So if the females weren't picking such extreme-looking males, <laughs> then maybe we wouldn't have ended up in this situation. I know. I keep saying that to somebody. I might have said that to you. I'm not sure. Uh, in China, how, how hard was it in China to, to do your work? I got a contact in Sichuan province in south-central China, uh, actually, um, a foreigner who had married a Chinese woman and was and was living there, named Sid. And so Sid and I spent a good week driving around the mountains of Sichuan, and that was pretty cool. I had heard various things about China before traveling there, that you know they've what, eaten all their birds and all the rest, and it's, there's lots of environmental issues culturally in that part of the world that people are dealing with. But I thought it was amazing. There's mm. these high passes in Sichuan, which were covered with snow and amazing forests. The pheasants in western China are spectacular. There's like 15 different kinds of pheasants, which are all, again, just very showy and um, colorful and 
So I I had a good time in China. It was it was odd to fly into Chengdu, which is a city of millions and millions of people, and then immediately leave the city and go out to the the cool part of the country, as far as I'm concerned, where all the 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 forests and everything are. This was a kind of an interesting trip that way because it was like touring all the most amazing cities in the world and then getting out of each one of them as fast as possible so I could get out to the wilderness. Yeah. Well, I, uh, there weren't any restrictions on your travel as, as, as far as being a uh, foreigner in China? There were. Uh, we had to be kind of careful. We did. Yeah, officially, you're supposed to get permits and that kind of thing to <laughs> stay in certain places, but it just didn't work for me because I didn't even know which birds I would need to get ahead of time, depended on which birds I had seen the previous week kind of thing, and so I had to stay kind of flexible with my travel. So we just drove around and stayed in local hotels in different cities, and if they gave us a strange enough look when we showed up, we'd check out early the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I, were there were there some problems in this regard in, in some of these countries? I noticed that North Korea is not on the list. I of, did of not. Go, although I have heard that North Korea actually has some pretty cool natural areas as well. Right. But no, I I did not go there. Yeah. <laughs> but did it, did, that, did that occur in some in some of the countries that you went to? Where there being a, being from out of town, there were certain restrictions on your travel that you couldn't go to some of these places. I'm wondering. I picked destinations where I knew I would be able to get to the birds that I needed to get to, but there were whole countries, of course, that I just couldn't travel to because they were war zones. My, my goal was not to get shot this year, so I didn't go to active <laughs> That would not be a big year. That would be a bad year. That would year. set yeah. me back a little bit. Yeah. But I did go to some kind of sketchier places. So, for instance, I've spent several days birding in South Turkey within huh. several kilometers of the Syrian border. That was when ISIS was all over the news. And yeah. um, so I'd go home and watch BBC World News and be like, oh, that's like 10 kilometers from where I was birding this afternoon. And wow. yet I never would have known it until I turned the news on. Yeah. Same thing in uh, Indonesia. I went to an island where the military was pursuing an Al-Qaeda cell around the same jungle that I was birding in. And in the Philippines, I went to Mindanao Island to look for the Philippine eagle, actually, which is mm -hmm. their version of the harpy eagle. Right. And the State Department has told people not to go there because there's been so many kidnappings lately. But in all these places, again, I had local contacts. It wasn't like I was just showing up and wandering around by myself. Mm -hmm. And so they knew what was happening on the ground. And the guy in the Philippines, for instance, said, yeah, well, don't worry about the rebel groups and everything. I know them. If we run into them in the forest, we'll just say hi. <laughs> that always works. <laughs> now, uh, Australia and New Zealand must have been special. Although they're very unique parts of the world. That was my plan, was to finish out the year in Australia. That would be the last continent of the year. And, yeah, the birds of Australia, because they're trapped on this big island have evolved into a many endemic species. And so quite a large percentage of the birds in Australia cannot be found anywhere else on Earth. I did a transect up and down the east coast of Australia, and then I hopped down to Tasmania for a day, and then I went over to New Zealand for two days. There's not that many birds in New Zealand relative to Australia, but the ones that are there you can't see anywhere else. So I got to see my kiwi, for instance, went out after dark and spotlighted a kiwi in New Zealand, and then went back to Australia 
and spent a couple days in the southwestern corner in Perth before that was the very end of the year. Christmas Day, I was in a place called Payne's Find, which is several hundred kilometers inland from Perth in southwestern Australia. It was like 95 degrees that day, basically the least Christmassy Christmas I think I've ever spent in my life. And then I realized I was just short of 6,000 birds, and that's what led to this mad dash at the end of the year to try to get to 6,000. Yeah. In Australia, what knocked your socks off that you saw? There is a bird in northeast Australia called the cassowary, cassowary, which I had always wanted to see. And I didn't have a good spot. I landed in Cairns in mid-December, and I was met by a local birder there named Del Richards. And then a reporter from the Cairns Post newspaper came out with us that morning because he wanted to write a story about the big year and everything. And so I remember this reporter was asking me all these questions, like, what bird do you most want to see in Australia? And I said, well, I've never seen a cassowary. I'd really like to find one. And he said, okay. And he he wrote that down. And the next morning, the headline in the paper was like, Birdwatcher wants to break world record with the cassowary in Cairns. (laughs) I was laughing. I was like, well, kind of. I would really like to see a cassowary. But then a couple hours after the paper came out that morning, I got a call on my cell phone because my number was in that newspaper article. (laughs) And this guy came on the line and he said, hey, I saw the paper this morning. Uh, Have you seen one of them cassowaries yet? And I said, (laughs) no, do you know where I might be able to find one? I don't have a good stakeout. And he said, well, yeah, I've got a cass and a couple of chicks likes to hang out in my backyard if you want to come over. (laughs) And I said, hold it right there. And I drove up to what turned out to be this amazing tropical forest property above the city and this very nice gentleman took me around behind his yard and sure enough there's this bird that is the third biggest bird in the world after the ostrich and the emu it's just about as tall as i am same shape as an ostrich generally but it has a weird cask it's called like a helmet thing on top of its head it looks basically like a dinosaur it's got pink wattles hanging off of its neck It's said to be the world's most dangerous bird. I think it's the only bird that's ever directly killed a human being by blunt force trauma. If they kick you hard enough in the stomach, they can actually disembowel you. (laughs) They have a a reputation for being somewhat aggressive. Somewhat. This one seems super friendly. It was a male with two chicks. It's always the male that takes care of the chicks in the cassowary's kingdom. So there's a good side to him, too. So I spent an hour hanging out with this cassowary in this random guy's backyard above the city of Cairns. That was definitely one of the most amazing sightings of the year. Amazing. I wonder how he got into cassowaries as a pet or as a... Well, this was a wild bird wild that bird, was just yeah. coming around his yard oh, because yeah. he had some fruit, I guess, and uh, it, cassowaries like to eat fruit. In fact, yeah. he fed it a banana when I was standing there. This bird is so big, it <laughs> took a full-size banana, unpeeled or anything, and swallowed it whole. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. That's letting you know what's going on with him when he does eats an entire banana. And so, and that was more or less right at the end of the year. And and did you make your goal? And you more than made your goal at that point. Yeah, on Christmas Day in Australia, I figured out I still needed to see forty more species to get to six thousand. So I was practically there. My original goal was to get to five thousand. So that had already exceeded it by a lot. But 
I didn't want to come so close to 6,000 and not quite get there. So I ended up coming with this radical plan to make a last-ditch flight back to India to go to northeast India for the last two days of the year before New Year because that's the one place I calculated I could still pick up the most birds where I met some local hardcore gung-ho young birders and they took me around the remote province of Assam in northeast India, way up there by the Chinese border, and we just barely made it. I got my 6,000th bird on the 29th of December. There you go. That was it. So, so 6,042 at that point? 6,042 officially was the number on the 31st of December, and then at midnight that night, the year list reset back to zero, and the year was over. But I had been birding at that point for 365 straight days, mm-hmm. doing literally nothing else for an entire year. Mm-hmm. I'd been kind of worried, actually, about getting burned out and yeah, not, wonder. like, you know, liking birds anymore after doing a year of nothing else. And that could cure you, I think. In the end, it was kind of the opposite. It was yeah. more like feeding an addiction, I suppose, where, you know, a drug addict doing as much as he wants for a whole year is just going to mess you up even worse than you were before. And that's sort of what happened to me. I, it was hard to stop. The next morning, January 1st, 2016, after the big year was over, I set my alarm for 5 a.m. that morning and went birding because I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> and then it took me a good couple months to kind of step myself back down to reality. To living with humans. That's right. <laughs> well, it's it's an amazing book, and uh, what you've done is amazing. And I, and I would like to point out, too, that you also, it's not just this quest thing for you or setting a records thing. For example, the thing with feathers that you wrote uh, is about the relationship between bird and human behavior. So it's an interesting study study there as well of, 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 sort of the deeper meanings of, the, of all this. I'm fascinated by birds at all levels. You know, I've, I like the adventurous aspect of going out and seeing new birds for your life list. But I also like studying bird behavior and yeah. just watching one bird all day and trying to figure out what it's doing. Yeah. Is there a good correlation between bird and human behavior? Or they seem quite different from us as a species. Or I know there are lots of different ones, but... Well, yeah, obviously birds are not people, so yeah. they have their differences. But I think it's amazing the number of parallels that there are when you start thinking about it. Birds kind of need all the same things we do. They need food, shelter, or they want to leave a legacy in many ways. They, <laughs> they have an intelligence that I think is quite underrated, yeah. at least until recent years. People mm-hmm. have been doing more studies on uh, bird cognition and, and how birds figure things out, and they're actually quite smart. Well, I want to thank you very much, Noah, for getting up this early there out in Oregon and uh, and speaking with us. Birding Without Borders is a book, an obsession, a quest, the biggest year in the world. Noah Stryker, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, great talking with you. Okay. Say you're saying goodbye.